When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This episode of the Birdshot Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. This episode of the show, we're talking getting in shape for upland season with Jordan Wilcher. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 211. Welcome back to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, everybody. We got a great show coming up with Jordan Wilcher talking plenty of bird dogs, upland hunting, and getting in shape for next season. We'll get to that shortly. But first, thank you to Patreon patrons of the Birdshot Podcast. Everybody out there making voluntary contributions in support of the show, its guests, and everything we do here on the Birdshot Podcast. I can't thank you enough. Again, we've continued to get more and more Patreon signing up for the Birdshot Podcast. I really appreciate it. And for those that do, they are eligible for monthly giveaways, bonus content when we make that available, exclusive discounts. Got a couple for Gumleaf USA and Upland Institute. And we send everybody some Birdshot Podcast can coolers and stickers. So thanks again, and if you are interested in signing up yourself, you could do so at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, share the podcast, little things that just take a moment and also help the Birdshot podcast. I appreciate anybody taking a moment to do those things. And just a couple quick notes from some of our key partners on the Birdshot podcast. You can always save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription with the promo code BSP20. That's letters BSP numbers 20. Save you 20% on Onyx Hunt. And I wanted to mention that right now through March 12th at midnight, depending on when you're listening to this, you can save $50 off any Final Rise vest system. 
which is a rare opportunity to save some dollars on the best hunting vest out there. Matt and his team run an amazing operation. They continue to grow. Finally got a chance to meet Matt at Pheasant Fest, which was awesome. Their booth was crazy busy the whole time, as expected. And they were doing some deals at the trade shows that they attended this spring. And for a limited time, they're making that deal available to everybody, whether you're able to get to one of those shows or not. So if you go to finalrise.com, check out their vest. They've got the new Summit XT vest. I've been running the Summit for three seasons now, I think. They've got new pockets on the XT that have magnetic closures. I'm going to talk to Matt about seeing if I can swap those on my current summit, which I believe is possible when the supplies become available. They launched some new pants at Pheasant Fest. I got to check those out in person. And Final Rise is really just, just getting started. They've got big things in the works, and it's been really cool to see that business grow. But anyways, of course, wanted to mention them as a partner on the show, finalrise.com. Use the promo code FINALRISE50. That's finalrise five zero. All one word, final rise spelled out, numbers five zero. That'll save you 50 bucks off any vest from final rise. And I don't know about you, but I am excited to try my summit camo vest for turkey season this year. Can't wait. Spring turkeys right around the corner. We'll be talking a little bit about that on the Birdshot podcast. And I will be putting my final rise vest to use in the turkey woods this spring, which is exciting. All right, check it out, finalrise.com. Okay, let's get into today's episode. We're talking with Jordan Wilcher, somebody I got connected with via social media, mainly just talking bird dogs and upland hunting. He's out west. He's in Nevada, chucker chaser, and we both clearly have a fondness for orange and white bird dogs, which you'll hear a little bit more about on today's episode. I do have a bit of a spoiler alert during our conversation today. We're talking about next dogs and breed selection, and in the time since recording this episode with Jordan, which goes way back to before Pheasant Fest, I was working ahead. He has made his decision and will be getting another Brittany pup that that pup is probably getting pretty close to being on the ground. So excited for Jordan there. And you will know the answer when you hear us talking about a little bit on today's show. But anyways, it is a time of year where the days are getting longer. The sun is getting stronger. It is still very much winter here in the North country where I'm at. We just got probably six to eight inches of fresh fluffy snow yesterday. The woods are beautiful winter woods. I think the grouse are pretty happy at this point. But anyways, I'm, I'm getting more energized, feeling like got a little bit of cabin fever going on despite getting out in the woods pretty much every day on the snowshoes and a little bit on the skis. But thinking about fitness and training and leading up to next season, which is something that I wouldn't say I take very seriously, but it's, it's important to me. And the older I get, which is not that old, I know, but still I'm not a spring chicken. I think about staying in shape and being able to do the things that I want to do and feel good doing them for a long time. So I do pay attention to things like fitness and diet and nutrition, and I still drink beer and eat pizza when I watch hockey games. But in order to do that and keep doing that, I've got to make sure I've got things dialed in in other areas. So Jordan has some knowledge and expertise on the subject, which you will hear about in today's show. And I'm excited to be working with Jordan a little bit this year on my fitness and training regimens. And in talking to him, I felt that what he and his colleague are doing very much aligned with the way I approach things, which is what is the minimum effective dose? How do I get the most bang for my buck in the busyness of everyday life? And how do we tailor that approach to supporting 
what we do as upland bird hunters. So that's the premise for the episode today. And I think with that said, we will welcome into the conversation and onto the Birdshot podcast, Jordan Wilcher. We are on the Birdshot podcast with Jordan Wilcher. Thanks for joining us today, man. Yeah, thanks for having me, Nick. Where are we talking to you from? I am in Reno, Nevada. You know, Nevada, you grew up out there out West. Yeah. I grew up in a little bit smaller town, Carson, which is 20 minutes from where I live now. So I'm a lifer at this point. <laughs> do you say, do you say you live in the West Southwest? How do you categorize Reno? Uh, I just the West. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're pretty, pretty mid mid level as far as the country's concerned. So not too far South, not too far North. Yeah. Gotcha. And you were you and I chatted earlier this week. That was was that last weekend that you were out hunting on the last day. Am I am I getting that right? Uh, yeah, that was the the end. The end of the season. How are you feeling at this point? The end. Uh, I'm less morose right now than I was when we talked last. But <laughs> I'm excited. I'm excited for for next year, big time. Yeah, yeah. It was just was exchanged some emails with the guy this morning and he he lives up here so our season has has basically been done since the new year and really kind of before that and i i told him that i i think being so busy and just thinking about other stuff i'm kind of over my postseason withdrawals and blues and he said uh he said he wasn't quite there yet so (laughs) i feel for him (laughs) uh yeah maybe i need to employ that strategy a little harder in terms of focusing on all sorts of other stuff yeah i think you you've you know you're still you're so fresh out of it you could you should really milk the the postseason blues and withdrawals for a little bit here you know (laughs) don't be in too big of a hurry (laughs) uh yeah yeah it's uh it's real well tell me about what the end of hunting season is like in nevada because you know, listeners will, I've, I always talk about sort of the story arc of my season around here and how it's always this impending doom with winter and the season can kind of be over overnight. But based on what I saw in the little GoPro clip you sent me, uh, looked like, it looked like, I don't even know if, was there snow? Was there like a little dusting of snow? I can't recall now. Yeah, there was. Okay. Yeah. What's the end, what's the end of the season? Like, is it, would you does it like t- tail off as far as productivity and and success, or is it still kind of peak hunting season all the way to the end? Um, it it depends, just like most things. You yeah. you can still have very great productive hunting late in the year. Um, popular areas in general, meaning easier access, the uh, birds definitely get twitchy in those areas. Sure, um, and so that can be tough. But the other thing that gets is a factor is just travel. Um, There's there's places to hunt where birds have probably not ever seen people in Nevada, but it's a matter of if you can get to them. And when the weather rolls in, I know that that last day or weekend um, we had a a storm system and there's a lot of people that were stuck and just kind of depending on where you're at in the state. So uh, you have to choose wisely sometimes if you don't want to be fighting the dirt roads for a kind of prolonged period of time yeah 
Do you say it sounded like you said Nevada? Is it Nevada or Nevada? I always get that mixed up, and I I feel like it's one of those things where if I say it wrong, and I had a guy on last week, the episode went up today. He was from Nevada, and I think I said it both ways. So I'm just waiting for some listener emails. <laughs> oh, it it's uh it's Nevada. We okay. even have stick we even have stickers that uh, uh you'll see on people's cars that uh, go through the pronunciation of Nevada, not Nevada, Nevada. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. So I, I guess I, I think I shot myself in the foot at least once on the episode that, that went up today, trying to, you know, trying to sort of build it up in my mind and make it, make it seem like it was, uh, like it sounded really cool. And, and that's the way that, that you guys would say it, but I guess I was wrong. It's the easy way, Nevada. But uh, yeah, it's not as grandiose as, <laughs> exactly. uh, as, <laughs> yeah, just wanted to get that squared away. So Jordan from Nevada, did you grow up bird hunting? And where, where did that, where did that all start for you? Oh man. Um, so no, uh, my family is not a hunting family, but I apparently came out of the womb wanting to do all of that stuff. <laughs> um, and I was about nine when the whole dogs and, and fishing saga kicked off. And I mean, my parents were awesome. They were, you know, totally facilitated this, mm-hmm. um, but uh, you know, once once I could drive, that's really when the 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 world was more my oyster. Um, and I even still have here a, a book I got when I was like nine. It's called Hunting Dogs from Around the World. It's been chewed on by every dog I've ever had. Um, Do you know the author? And that's uh, it's. I'll or, probably. Or is that like it kind out. of like an encyclopedia kind of a deal, or? I, I could look. I'm pretty sure it's Jean Michel Luperdi or something. Yeah, Jean Michel Luperdi. Oh, I don't know if I've I don't and, know if I've uh, heard of that one. That's cool. Yeah, it's got this just whole host of, you know, hunting dogs of all types, um, pointers, spaniels, hounds, terriers, you name it. And I used to. I mean, I've I've worn this thing out over <laughs> the years. So i'll send you a picture it's it's pretty uh it looks like it survived some kind of natural disaster <laughs> i love it so that so that you were you were curious about all that stuff from an early age um sort of unbeknownst to anybody around you kind of sounds similar to me i mean i had access to the outdoors and um i took to it just in a in an obsessive way really from an early stage and i don't know if there's any explanation for that other than good exposure and then parents that that helped me out and facilitate it as well yeah i uh i grew up in a place where basically my house just opened up into the desert and my brother and i just roamed that place i mean like it was our job so as as long as we could hear our mom whistle and there was a few times where we couldn't which you know we got in trouble for (laughs) but um pretty much you know take our pellet guns and and head off into the the great unknown <laughs> every <Love> day. <laughs> Do you recall any first experiences with upland birds? Like were you guys flushing birds or anything like that out there? Oh yeah. I mean, we had quail everywhere. Okay. Um, we had uh, the street I lived on was actually called desert peach. And there was a bunch of, they're actually desert peaches and you would find wads of quail and those things. Um, and yeah, you know, chasing those things around, just seeing whatever you could see. Um, but there was lots of those close by. 
<laughs> I was at the barber shop earlier this week and talked to the uh, I hadn't been there before and the guy grew up around here and we we got into talking about growing up and chasing partridge grouse around here and pellet guns and wrist rockets and he said he had a he had a sling for a while which I had to re- refresh my memory on what a sling was but that takes me back that's that's fun stuff oh yeah i mean i still have a slingshot so i i've <laughs> never i never left that phase <laughs> i actually found i found my old one of my old wrist rockets in a box at my cabin um not that long ago the the uh whatever it's i don't know if it's like a polyurethane whatever the band was was pretty decayed and rotted so it would need some it would need an injection of new life to be brought back to life but um those things were fun but as i think back on them uh ridiculously dangerous oh or could be (laughs) just like a shotgun i suppose yeah but you're you're just like entrusting it to a small child and (laughs) i i think about that all the time my parents today would probably go to jail for letting us do (laughs) what we did not that we did anything bad, but right. it's like those kids are running around with like knives and slingshots and, <laughs> you know, just <laughs> nobody, nobody was maimed. But, uh, yeah, they, I think about it now. My daughter, she's five. And well, I should say that I, I did get her a slingshot. But um, <laughs> once once they're a little older, it's like don't go shoot out the neighbor's windows or anything like that. Yeah. Or your or your eye like the Christmas story, you know. But who doesn't love to knock a few pop cans off the off the fence post, right? Oh, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, we've set the stage. When that that Brittany you've got is that your? Where are we at there? Is that your first bird dog? Have you had dogs for a while now? Take me through the rest of it. No, that is my. She's my third. Okay. Um, legitimate, you know, bird dog. But I would say the first one that I've done it right. Um, okay. Or as right as I can, you know, I've kind of, I, well, and what's funny is that on that cover of that hunting dogs from around the world book, there's a, you know, orange Brittany on the front of it. And that's just hung in my mind for decades. Um, That was the seed that was planted. That, that was, there's a, there's a setter on the front. There's a couple other dogs, but the ones that stand out are the the Mm. setter and the the Brittany's the big picture, but um, I actually had, which a very popular right now, it seems like I had a, a poodle pointer actually, um, about gosh, I guess it'd be 14 years ago. Um, and I've just kind of stumbled into dogs, you know, especially if you're younger, don't have a lot of money. Um, he had an eye defect and I heard about him somehow and drove down and, and picked him up. Um, I had him and then I ended up getting a a pound dog that was a litter mate to a, um, one of my friends, he had this like a GSP pointer mix. And, um, I ended up getting her a couple years after my, my poodle pointer, um, and had those and ran all over the place and shot all sorts of stuff. Um, but hadn't focused as much on, you know, just diehard upland stuff mm-hmm. as I have with, with this dog um so it's been an interesting curve i guess but she's she's not my first yeah well, <sighs> well what's um I, i'm curious because I, I was kind of talking to david about this my one of my previous guests and just kind of you know a two three dogs in like like what 
what are you doing right now? What were some of those mistakes that you've, in hindsight, you now can identify or just things you've done differently? Talk me through some of that stuff. Oh, man. Um, the mistakes are like, I, I could probably fill up the walls in my house right. um, writing on them. But the, just understanding what what pointing, you know, what a pointing dog does, mm-hmm. um, kind of what what their job is, how they're independent from you and how to facilitate that. And versus, uh, you know, my pound dog, I, so my poodle pointer, I want to train him to do all this stuff. want to, and not really understanding the, uh, really autonomous nature of a, of a pointing dog. Um, and then I get this, this pound dog that's, you know, I did way less with, and she was a way better dog. Mm-hmm. So you have that, you have that realization, like less is more in, in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking with a guy about that, you know, all these situations where if you remove yourself from them and you get a better outcome, what, what does that tell you? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and, and not just not worrying about stuff as much, really. Um, I think with, you, especially your first dogs, things like that. You, you don't want to ruin anybody's hunt or, yep. um, you put a lot of pressure on those things. And, uh, just in, in my experience thus far, which is obviously pretty limited, um, that does not equate to a better outcome. So where I'm at now is, uh, my dog just finished out her, you know, her first season. And, um, I gave her the leeway to make as many mistakes as she wanted to pretty much. Um, other than stuff that was going to get her, you know, hurt, um, running off of cliffs or chasing horses or things like that. (laughs) Um, but is when it comes to birds, just lots and lots and lots of, um, exposure to different types of terrain and getting her to get into birds in front of me. Um, and very limited like pigeon work just to, um, make sure that she was really good in terms of, uh, being introduced to, to the gun. Cause just started with a starter pistol on wild birds when we found them. Okay. Yeah. And, and, um, did a, a couple pigeon sessions and then time to time to hunt and just kind of roll the dice and see where the, the chips fall and read the dog and kind of not have a big expectation with, with every hunt because the, it's just it's all different every point's different um and just kind of trying to wipe the expectation out of my mind every time yep yep oh that's good stuff i want to i'm going to ask a few questions dive a little bit deeper into that i was going to mention the poodle pointer thing you mentioned that's getting popular right now i i would say i don't have a very good feel on that but i would say that just as far as references, I think I had somebody recently reach out and say they were going to get a poodle pointer. I feel like I, I'm picking up on that sentiment as well. What what does the what did what do you recall? Like what did the poodle pointer do well? I mean, what what are they all about? Yeah, um, old Max. He was. I mean, as far as a pointing dog goes, I just he just was not great, and I, you know, he just uh, I don't know if it's the genetics, if it's me. Right, right. Just not a great, not a great pointing dog. In all honesty, he would point, um, not a, not a really big running dog, just, just kind of a different animal, but, um, his ability to find 
you know, dead birds and retrieve was, was far superior to his ability to find and point birds. Um, and he was just a cool dog. Like we called him the town mayor. If he could, he would be just shaking hands, kissing babies. Um, he, he was just had the greatest demeanor. Um, he was just really cool. And, um, you know, that's, I'm sure there's some really great ones out there, really kind of high power pointing dogs and stuff. But, um, from, from what I had from him, it just was, and that's part of kind of why I I think didn't understand pointing dogs as well is because (laughs) he just didn't really point a lot, you know? Yeah. So it's, and, and I didn't understand, um, you know, putting a brake on a dog or stopping them when they got older or stuff like that. I, that was, you know, I'm like, you're a pointing dog, just find the birds and point them and then right. I'll shoot them. Right. Um, a lot of variables there with you as a handler and first dog and all that stuff. Oh uh, yeah. I, and unable to number the amount of variables <laughs> with me being the handler. So, <laughs> well, I do think it's interesting. You brought up a, a similar kind of perspective that I've shared and, I mean, I feel like I've heard it enough that I think it's pretty common. And I, I wonder about that, you know, this whole first dog business, you, you know, it's new. So you're kind of, you know, if you like me and maybe like Jordan, like you kind of, you sort of over research and overanalyze and you are putting some pressure, like you almost can't help it really. And then with subsequent dogs, you kind of, you have a better understanding of how things are going to play out. So it's, you know, anytime you do something for the second time, there's going to be less pressure on yourself. So I think that's just, it's partly natural. Uh, but I wonder like, you know, if, if you and I say we're going to go to somebody and say, okay, you're getting your first bird dog. Just don't worry about it. You know, just go out there and just have fun. You know, that kind of stuff. I mean, there, there's a place for that, but some of the stuff you just kind of have to learn on your own, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think it kind of parallels having a, a pointing dog there's some stuff they're just going to have to learn on their own too right and you just have to give it you know you need time and opportunity i guess um but it does sound like you said when ah, oh, just have fun get out there people look at you like well what how is that possible right. what does that mean and <laughs> and it's like well i mean get them so they're not afraid of being shot over and other than that you know if if they can not get lost and they're in front of you, you're doing, you know, you're doing good. Yeah. Um, but I think I was talking with a guy too. I, I think it's interesting cause I grew up reading books and all of those books of course were old. So my kind of idea toward a lot of this stuff is more toward the kind of old school end, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. And you know, you just, not being so worried about everything um you know people they lost dogs all the time they would just i mean it's just different and i think the attitude to that versus kind of today's world is in there's pressure to perform to look like you're a really great hunter all these things and um you know talking about i i never read anything about a dog being broke or anything at a very early age in any of the old stuff I've read versus floating around now you'll see things like oh this dog's broke at you know whatever age and 
those a lot of the older stuff you see they're just like oh yeah dog's still pretty young they're three yeah and you're thinking well geez three i hope they're like dialed by the time they're three yes um (laughs) i i think it's just a different a different mentality um and just giving them that time to just not worry about it for a little bit um, about anything too concrete i guess yeah that that's interesting too about how that has shifted and and I think there's, you know, there's pros and cons. Some of that being sort of superficial, like sort of race to steadiness. Like that's that's not what we're looking for. But there, you know, in some of the old books, they used to say like, you know, don't do any training for a year, which like that's not necessarily helpful. Like you're you're giving up a lot of time. And so there's a balance in there of like what should you be working on in, in year one and the first six months and what shouldn't you be working on and um, I, some of that it's probably due to dogs and genetics improving and bitability and advanced development. And I'm sure there's, you know, again, you can't just look at any one of those things in a vacuum. It's all uh, a cumulative effect. Yeah. And I also think those things couldn't account for what the world today would look like. And right. ha- you know, having birds out your back door, um, living in a bigger space, I mean, a lot of it seems like it was assumed you were going to be out, you know, the dog was going to be exposed to wild birds. You would be hunting. Um, yeah. There's all these assumptions where, you know, somebody today might have a hunting dog and they might not have access to, to lots of birds or things like that. So it it does, you know, it's, it, it does change, I guess, the narrative on what moving forward today looks like. Yeah. What's the young Brit's name? My daughter was in charge of that, Matilda. Matilda, nice. You, have you Matilda. shortened that in the field at all? I usually call her Tilda. Okay, <laughs> that's good. So, all right, your first season, you kind of preface it there, and I'm just kind of curious, like how it sounds like you basically, you know, you, you gave her time and opportunity, and you were getting into birds. How did you handle, how did you handle shooting birds or, and or not shooting birds? importantly like what were you looking for and and how did some of that stuff go for you in year one yeah my goal was to not shoot any birds that i intentionally saw her you know cannonball through yep um and that seemed very clear in my mind to start the season and then the nature of that changes because i think there's a lot of the times when like the the handler moves the bird and not the dog Mm -hmm. and that and so you really have to be paying attention to see if your dog's doing it right and to see once you get to know them what you think their intention was and you know if, if they're barely moving a foot and that bird gets up in my experience this year normally that bird is getting up because of me and not really because of the dog um so i I didn't, um, she, I mean, she ripped plenty of birds this year and I did not, I didn't shoot them, but part of that worked out nicely because usually when she would get really excited and is ripping birds, she's uh, quite a ways from me. And so there's just no opportunity for me even to, if she's 250 yards away and, and zaps a covey, I'm in no position to shoot those anyway. So that part kind of handled itself. Yep. Um, had a couple of wild flushes, which those are very easy because, you know, a bird gets up and again, from me going past it, the dog's gone past this bird, you know, maybe the dog is 
60 yards to my right and a bird gets up 20 yards to my left. Um, I know the dog didn't rip that bird. I will totally shoot that bird. Yeah. Um, you know, I have no qualms with that, yep. but it, it ended up being just understanding in those closer scenarios to try to really pay attention to the dog. If she's, her body language is showing that she's, um, and she's pretty easy to tell cause she starts, um, she's, I mean, she'll stop hard if mm-hmm. they're close, but, um, toward the end of the season, she was getting sneaky and she'd kind of point and creep and point and creep. And she'd start doing that, uh, you know, 60 yards out kind of thing. Yep. Um, and so it's, I stuck pretty good to that, but, um, like I said, it was, it was a bit easier because the times where she really set sail, she was, she was so far that it, I was, I was not a part of the equation anyway. Yeah. I like that. I like that description. Um, it'll, it, I guess it a lot, it does align kind of with where I've arrived at some of that stuff and in specifically Rose, my younger setter, you know, these pointing dogs, like they have the, once they're, you know, six months age or, or whatever, they have like the physical ability to run out and rip, like you're saying, any bird. I mean, they, they could eliminate any shot opportunity that we would ever had. So if you take like that assumption and then you, and then you analyze other bird contacts where the dog is, maybe the dog goes on point, you walk over 60 yards and then a relocating process begins you know, that's where you're really analyzing the dog's behavior. And it sounds like that's what you were doing. Cause again, does the dog race right in and rip the bird? Obviously we don't want to shoot that, but is, is it, or is the dog being a young dog, trying to figure it out, trying to point the bird again? That's kind of where I arrived in my mind. Like is, is the dog trying to get the bird pointed again, or is it racing right in and ripping the bird? And that's, I think that's a gray area that doesn't always get clarified when people say things like only shoot pointed birds or don't shoot bumped birds. I just think you lose a lot of nuance in, in, in that area. I, I couldn't agree more because I, like I said, I, I go off of what I think my dog's intent was. Yep. And if she's trying really hard to figure it out, um, you can see, you can see when they're doing that and you can see when, you know, you know, their pupils are the size of their head and their tongues hanging out and yep. they're going to try to headbutt the bird kind of versus, um, and the other thing, I mean, it depends on how many birds there are. Your dog could go in and point and there might be just depending on how the wind is, there could be a straggler in a big covey that's on the outside that the dog just doesn't realize it's close to. And yeah, they might, they might bump that covey because of that, but I don't think the dog, you know, they're sitting there, they're stone still, but that, you know, the dog still has gotten tight enough to where one of them goes and then they all go. It's, um, those are decisions that you, I guess everybody has to make yeah. for themselves. But if I, if my dog's standing there and that, that cubby is, uh, you know, she takes a step or something and a straggler on the outside gets up that I don't think she, she knew was there. It's, you know, same thing. I'm, I'm shooting those birds. Yeah. Yeah. And, and those, those little things, you know, that's, you know, again, we are talking about a a pup in its first year and, and wanting to reward some, some, you know, positive interactions with birds. And like some of that stuff can be cleaned up later. I mean, I think there's, you know, maybe some folks would be concerned about just, and some people, I mean, like you're saying, everybody can approach it differently, but I just know 
and I, I probably told this story before. I, the perfect example for me is with Hartley, my first dog. This would have been his second year because his first year he was really young. But he had a he had a grouse pointed, and it was it was in this little it was like a clearing in an aspen stand. There was a little opening, and there was a brush pile in the middle of this opening and he's he's pointing locked up stone cold dead into this brush pile and i walked 100 yards you know to get there so he's held this bird for a minute or whatever and i walk in and it's one of these things i've seen it you know hundreds of times now where when the bird flushes it makes a, it takes a step or whatever and it moves and the and the the dog and the bird basically break at the same time but yeah because i didn't see the grouse clearly in the air with my dog standing like perfectly still i watched this grouse fly away and i just i think back to that moment just like you're what an idiot like that was a an awesome opportunity and it i mean i've killed plenty of birds over hardly like it's it doesn't really have an effect today but i just look at that being like i i just had no idea what i was doing at that time yeah and i mean like you say and 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 these decisions too are happening in a you know, fractions of a second, right? Yes. Am I going to shoot this bird or not? What's my take on this? Yep. Um, and so the easiest thing for me, like I said, is to be just really watching my dog and try to figure out, you know, what, what's, what's happening there. Um, and I, I also think it's just hard because they're not machines. It doesn't mean, you know, oh, there's birds somewhere on this hillside. This dog is going to nail them perfect. The wind's going to be just right. I mean, there's just situations where they might be trying to do everything correct, right, and it just doesn't work out. And does that mean that the dog did something wrong? It's, I mean, it's hunting. There's just, yep. it, it, it can't be perfect every time, you know? Exactly. Yep. Wild bird hunting. Yeah, that's, yeah, that, and that's exactly how I look at it. And I mean, all I can say at this point is, is with dog number two, if, if I were to, at a high level sort of describe my approach, it would be exactly what you're saying. I just paid way more attention to the dog and its behavior and what I thought Rose's intent was. And I basically made all my shoot and don't shoot decisions on that. And she's, she's going to be three in May. We've had three hunting seasons now. And I mean, I could not be happier with her and like how we work together in getting birds pointed, flushed and, and shot at it's just it's worked out really well and again still a small sample size for you and i both but um i just find that stuff really interesting yeah i do too because it's um it, it's it ended up being more straightforward for being such a dynamic thing yes. i guess with yep. kind of focusing on that that singular aspect um it just it cleared it up for me i guess yeah like it simplified it and cleared it up in a way that just made made more sense and was i think allowed take some of that pressure off while you are out there hunting enjoying yourself making those split second decisions in the field uh really simplified and clarified it for me sounds like it did for you as well yeah and and not shooting birds is okay and i think taking some of that pressure off to just say hey if this doesn't happen i don't shoot these birds like it's okay for for both parties um and usually things in my experience go better when you're not, you know, treating it like the end of the world. Right. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it always comes back to like, you pretty much, you, you can't really go wrong, not shooting. Like you're not really going to do, you're not going to make any mistakes, not shooting, but you just don't want to be in the situation. Like I was with Hartley where I'm watching a girl's fly away that he, 
he honestly did his job perfectly for his age and where he was at. I mean, he did everything right. So then you feel bad about that stuff, but it's a, yeah, it's not a, it's not a simple thing, but it doesn't, uh, doesn't need to be overcomplicated, I guess, which we have a tendency to do. Absolutely. (laughs) So what birds did you get Tilda on this year? Chuck or quail? Um, yeah. So California quail, chucker, um, on grouse but that never panned out that was like a monty python skit for the entire duration that that occurred what Um, what was that again you kind you kind of faded out there just for a quick second grouse i heard grouse (laughs) i heard grouse (laughs) naturally Um, my you got my attention (laughs) yeah um yeah i will i will say with no shame that i am definitely not a grouse hunter um but the season is open so we're gonna go um and so blue grouse okay and got her in grouse but it was her her first you know real hunting expedition um she pointed some um she ripped some there was you know her our best opportunity uh she she was on point in this kind of aspen patch and i'm it was i think like our third time going and it's like, okay, it's going to happen. And I get to her and I like walk through a wasp nest and get stung, oh. you know, a bunch of times. Ouch. I'm swatting at these things The uh, you know, me probably sounding like I'm falling down the hill. The birds get up and dog goes. And, um, you know, that was, that was about how our grouse season went. But, um, <laughs> after that, uh, the, the California quail are incidental for us. So, Somewhere where we're chucker hunting, yeah, you hear them or something, go put the dog on them um, and shot some of those and um, got out for mountain quail once this year too. And um, wasn't much in the ways of dog work for that hunt, but um, got her into some mountain quail and that that's it. Okay. Yeah. Then chucker, would you say chucker, you're kind of bread and butter? Yeah, that's my favorite. Yeah, that's cool. How did her range wise and just kind of overall development for Tilda? Like, are you are you happy with that? What are you seeing? What are you thinking there? Yeah, I started the season thinking, you know, I want this dog to just tear into stuff. And as time went on, if you're hunting in decent spots with good bird density, that dog doesn't necessarily have to run 500 yards to find birds. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that desire kind of left me relatively quickly um, because she mostly will run inside of about 200 yards. I think the the furthest she she had one point that she was on. Um, she was at like 500, um, but that's pretty rare. And she'll occasionally blast out to uh, 300, 350, but mostly inside of 200. Um, and I was happy with that because that's where we were finding birds and shooting them. So, yeah. um, I, I guess I, I, I care, I started caring about it less. And then interestingly toward the end of the season, especially as birds in some places were getting jumpy, she really kind of brought her range in and I was trying to figure out what was happening. 
I, you know, what my answer when I don't know what's happening is just shut your mouth and keep walking. Sure. Yeah. Um, that's usually what I go back to. Okay. Strategy. <laughs> yeah. Just shut up and, and walk. So I don't like to talk a lot anyway, but I just really, I, I really focus on that. And then it, it all kind of came full circle as she had been, she had been bumping some birds, but not intentionally. And uh, she was getting really frustrated. And um, she brought her range in and she just got very careful. And then the last couple hunts of the season, she she did some just awesome stuff where she had pinned some pretty spooky birds. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, then it the light bulb went on. I'm like, oh, duh, she's she's being careful because these last four hunts or whatever, she's had birds getting up much farther in front of her than she was before. So um, she started to to act a little bit differently but um very purposeful yeah Yeah. so that was kind of her her evolution over the season it was definitely not linear she went from you know waltzing around not too far in front of me then to getting a good ways out to where you know i can't even see her and and then at the end of the season really bringing it back in but um overall i think she was just trying to figure out how to how to get on birds really yeah and doing what whatever needed what was needed for that about how how old is she now uh she's just uh she turned one in december okay so she's just a little over one yeah gotcha yeah that's uh, that sounds i mean maybe a similar story for for dogs about you know under a year about a year old just they kind of course they're they do the puppy stuff they're hanging out by and then they get they get their legs under them they get confident they take off and um you know they're they're trying to use their use their physical abilities and then they then you start to they start to settle in and you start to work together and yeah it sounds sounds pretty similar to my first season with rose too yeah i've been really lucky in that she's very my wife says that she's obsessed with me but um <laughs> she she very we we like to hunt together a lot i i haven't really felt like she's been off doing her own thing um really ever this season she's she's definitely wants to wants to be a part of the whole deal so that's cool. i i like that aspect of this dog a lot yeah absolutely yeah and i imagine i don't know if i've hunted over that i you know i'm sure there are those dogs you know maybe horseback trial dogs or that's totally out of my experience but just like big independent dogs that that are just kind of out there doing it um both mine two are are very in tune with me and we're we're hunting together and um i've come to really enjoy that for sure yeah and i think it just depends on the person too you know some people want different things and there's there's a dog for everybody indeed yeah well that's cool so anything you got anything you're you will you kind of like are going to work on this off season in preparation for next season or are you not really thinking about that at the moment um i mean kind of more of the same i just getting her out a lot keeping her in shape um you know before everything is starting to pair up and nest and hatch we'll still get out and find some quail or something and she uh she hasn't loved to retrieve um okay well chuck chucker specifically um but she started she started picking them up and packing them around at the end of the season um so i'll do some i have some um some frozen birds to do a little more stuff with that but nothing 
nothing outrageously formal. I don't think I, I felt like she was really hitting her stride and I, my main goal for the foreseeable future is just to try to continue to build momentum with her. Um, and cause I figure you can always rein it back in if you need to, sure. but, yeah. um, just, just keep fanning the fire. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit UplandGunCompany.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market uh, i meant to ask is she out of uh any particular kennel like what was your your search for a Brittany? how extensive was that uh not extensive okay. um my uh, well partially the one of my friends is the absolute best trucker hunter i know and he's had a fair number of britneys okay and i said hey i'm 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 at the point like I'm getting my Brittany. Who do I get it from? And he gave me two. I think at the time there was two two names, um, and I got her out of a guy in Utah. They're called Temp Brits, um, and he was one of the ones that came recommended. So he's a guy. If he says you know this is this is what I would do, it's usually very very good advice. You trust so, his opinion, yeah. Very much. Um, and he's, like I said, he's had a lot of Britneys. He has, he still has one. He has two pointers now also. Um, but yeah, I pretty much rolled with that and went, the timing was all right with when that litter was being born and everything. So, um, that just worked out good. Yeah. I love it. I, I keep saying this, but the, the Britneys have a special place in my mind and I, I don't know if there, maybe at some point there will be one in my future, but I just, I think if I think back, like I've always kind of liked Brittany's, that was maybe another, I always talk about the short hair and think of Brittany was kind of a dog that I was sort of familiar with and more, even more so than the English setter. I didn't think about English setters much when I was growing up. And of course I love my setters now, but um, I haven't hunted over a lot of Brittany's. I, I always recall my first trip out to Montana hunting over Brandon Moss's Britneys and that was the first time I was like you know his Britneys they really ran and they covered ground and that was just not how I pictured a Britney I think I just saw more pets and house dogs growing up and uh, just kind of opened my eyes and 
I just there's something about them. I I do love the orange and white color scheme, and but I like I like their style. I like their smaller size, how they how they cover ground, how they move. Um, so I just I guess I'm just <laughs> waxing poetic about Britneys. <laughs> Yeah, which is funny because that's my debate right now is, is my next dog going to be a Brittany or a Setter? Because <laughs> variety is the spice of life, but I also come back to, I like this dog so much. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's just a very hard hard decision. Um, yeah, that, and it's a long long commitment too, you know, like I, I wonder that too. And, and I, you know, I am, I'm the type of person that I generally stick to what I like and know that's kind of my tendency. So it would be a big step for me to change course, I guess. But, um, I think, you know, if enough time passed and I've maybe hunted over a few more and sort of, that's the big thing for me as I just, I would need to get some more experience hunting behind. I'd love to get on some rough grouse hunts with some Britneys and see, see that, how that goes. But yeah, it's funny. That's actually how you and I started talking is like, I was putting up, you know, pictures of Rose and you were, you sent me a message like, she's a good looking dog and she's an orange and white English setter. So I can, you know, connecting all the dots here. It's obvious why you were, why you liked Rose. And then we were, we were chatting about setters and Chucker and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I do love the setters. It's just (laughs) same thing. Something, you know, your eye starts to wander, but like you said, it's, it's a, it's a big commitment. So Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to have this dog for how many years, but, um, being down to one dog, I, I got to figure it out because, uh, it's, it's a lot of hunting for one, for one dog. So well, I got to make my decision here pretty soon. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, we'll have to, maybe we'll have to figure out a way to connect somewhere and, uh, we can, we can hunt over each other's dogs and maybe help our, help our decisions. <laughs> uh, I am all for this experiment. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Well, I, I do want to segue transition a little bit and maybe we'll have you tell us a little bit about what you do professionally and then and then what we're going to get into today. But I will just sort of tee you up by saying um, it's that time of year starting to think about I just got on my cross country skis for the first time this week and I might go out today. It's a, it's we were a little warm this week, but now it's cooled back down. Beautiful, sunny day. And I got to get out and do some skiing and I'm thinking about fitness and thought we could work some of that into the podcast and thought if I'm going to talk fitness and exercise on the podcast, it better be with a chucker hunter, right? <laughs> well, yeah, that's it. It is pretty, it can be a demanding endeavor. <laughs> um, so yeah, what I do, I mean, in the full scope of what I do, my, I, as I told you, my grown up job, I'm a, I'm an RN. Yep. Um, but then my side gig is uh, I'm a coach for um, an online fitness programming thing called Human Predator Pack Mule, which was started by one of my friends who lives on the East Coast. And he travels west. He goes all over the place to hunt. And he's a full-time um, coach, trainer, owns a gym, the whole deal. And looking at resources for people that wanted to you know, plan hunts, especially bigger hunts where they're going to big game things, where they're going to Alaska sheep hunts. And, um, he wanted to make something good for people doing that to spend their time on. So I had trained with him for a number of years and then, um, I started, started coaching with them and, uh, that was last year. And that's led me to now 
so we i guess i don't know how you want to break it down but um we train all year round and with a with an emphasis on basically general capacity so yeah people that hunt need a you need a whole host of buckets to draw from right um you you need good endurance you need to be relatively strong um you need to move well and more and more we've been looking at the the upland folks because honestly uh, i would say it's probably safe to say the average guy or gal with a dog um, that likes to upland hunt is probably in the field more than a lot of the big game side of the house honestly in terms of days sure um i could see that uh, yeah i mean it's just the frequency the seasons are long right um and it's sometimes not as much of an endeavor um so you and i were kind of talking about um like your last year how your kind of fitness buildup went and how you thought it, it went um seemingly better yep and looking at it on paper you're it's it's easy to see why you started uh, early in the year with some less intense stuff and over time kind of built that up and that's that's kind of the name of the game so i don't know what do you want to talk about yeah i think that's a that's a good premise and i and i i wanted to i i think i wonder how much conversation there is about you know i think the this idea that one of the cool things about 2023 right now like the ability the ability for us to access information and niche down. I feel like, you know, with strength and strength, exercise, strength, fitness, that's a, that's a huge scope and you can slice and dice it in a number of different ways. But the cool thing is that there's a, I feel like there's a lot more information now on like mobility and flexibility and capacity in heart rate training. You know, it's not this, uh, it's not the vanity, like, uh, standing in front of the mirror doing bicep curls, you know, like that's that's definitely not what we're talking about. We're talking about performance for being able to do the things that we love to do and feel good doing it. So I, I think you hit on those those buckets, mobility. Um, I wonder if we could maybe talk about, you know, what is mobility and then what is endurance and, and how that stuff sort of tailors to upland hunting and how it might um, make sense for us. Sure. Yeah, I mean, our whole literally our motto is train smarter hunt longer we want people to be doing this into their 80s you know if you can yeah so you you have to you don't just magically get there right uh any any 80 year old you know that's still out roaming around they've been active their entire life um so looking at the things that we train for in terms of um for instance mobility right for for in general we do a movement screening on folks um, to look at just general joint range of motion. We have a lot of emphasis, obviously, on the the lower extremities because we're all walking, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so the more mobility you can access, the easier life is, right? Um, and it's just kind of a prerequisite to any exercise you're going to do, whether it's strength, endurance, um, the better you move, the more efficient then you can be with whatever activity you're doing, uh, which just generally lends itself to having a better outcome. And in terms of that, basically that stuff is built and sprinkled in throughout what we do 
on a daily basis. It's part of the programming. Um, and depending on everybody's different. So there, there's like a kind of a choose your own adventure portion of that, where if, you know, you have shoulder issues, well, you hedge your bets towards spending more time working on your shoulders than say your hips. Mm. And so some, like you said, there's so much information out there. Oh, some of it good. Some of it, maybe not as applicable. Oh yeah. There's but, plenty of that. <laughs> Uh, there, there is, um, and like you said, everybody has different goals. So weeding through what is good for a person that wants to, you know, spend a lot of time chasing their dogs is maybe different than somebody who wants to look great in the tank top. Yeah. Um, so general, do you want examples of some of the stuff yeah, uh, in I, terms of mobility? I, I guess, yeah. And like what, so I think naturally people think, yeah, our legs, we need those as bird hunters. We're, we're logging miles, we're walking. But what are the factors that go, what, what goes into that as far as like, you know, maybe the things that we don't think of just like walking and or running, jogging, we'll, we'll get to that okay. um, with the heart rate training. But like, you know, what strength, flexibility, and mobility should we be thinking about when it comes to our legs? Um, and then beyond, you know, what else do you see as very, very valuable and or important to a bird hunter. Okay. So in terms of mobility on the baseline, we're talking about just what range of motion can you take a given joint through? So a lot of the things we do are what they call like controlled, um, like ankle cars and shoulder cars, where basically you're, you thought of just moving your toes in a circle if they're hanging off the ground. Um, same thing with your hip picking it up and basically drawing the biggest circle you could with your knee. Hmm. We want as much range of motion basically in every plane of those joints as we can get. Um, and then in terms of when we look at like we, you and I were talking about walking yep. and it, it, it sounds um, not flashy, but really what we're getting is if, especially this time of year, spending time on our feet. So we're getting, tissue tolerance, right? Um, the more time you're spending walking just in general, that's going to set you up. It, it's relatively actually specific for people chasing birds, right? You're, you're walking. It's actually a pretty specific activity. So, um, the beauty of that is the it's low intensity yep, and it's, it's specificity is actually very high because you're getting a lot of tissue tolerance in your, your feet and your ankles. Um, it also can help be a little bit diagnostic because if you're walking a lot and you go, geez, my, you know, my hip flexor is starting to bother me after doing all that walking. Um, it can help be diagnostic for some of the areas of mobility that maybe you need to, to work on a little bit. Um, so in terms of general, general things we should be doing, walking is, is pretty great. And sometimes we do that with a little bit of a load as well. Okay. Not, not anything crazy. We do a fair bit of rucking because, um, you get the benefits of moving over ground on foot. Um, adding a little bit of load helps when we're talking about getting into the heart rate training aspect, Yep. but we don't, we don't have necessarily all the same, um, eccentric stress, um, or the landing, the impact necessarily of running, yeah. which, depending on where you're at, if you're 65 years old and want to get in shape, we still want you moving over ground. 
but maybe we don't necessarily want you running um, because that might not be the juice might not be worth the squeeze gotcha. in that aspect. Um, whereas, whereas a, a loaded, loaded down walk might be easier on you and more beneficial. I mean, it's just the, the complete opposite there, right? It, exactly. You're getting, you're getting pretty much all those benefits and we don't, we don't do any rucking with extremely heavy weights or anything like that. Um, if for the big game folks, when we get geared more towards specificity later in the season, we'll do some things with a heavier pack, but it's never over long distance beating your joints into the ground. So it's, it's always a balance of risk and reward and getting injured is not helping anybody. I was going to say to the, you know, we, as bird hunters, most of us carry a vest and, you know, so we are carrying some weight in the field too. So any kind of, I've, I've often thought about that. Like one thing we have, we have going for us is our bird dogs are oftentimes, I think our best workout buddies when it comes to walking, like I pretty much, you know, almost every day, like it has to be a, a very unusual circumstance for me not to go out for some kind of a walk with my dogs. And that's, that's how I've incorporated a lot of my fitness train, just as far as being efficient with my time and getting at least that exercise every day. And it's, I've thought about, you know, getting a, a plate carrier or some kind of a weighted vest or doing, I, I never have, but it's just, it's kind of low hanging fruit. Like I'm doing it anyways. Maybe I should, maybe I should carry a load. So maybe if you've got some, and you and I will talk about this, I'm sure, but, um, some specifics, you know, like what should we do if we were looking to add load to a, to a walk? Yeah. So adding load to a walk is great for the reasons you just laid out. Um, and also for anybody, have you ever weighed your vest, especially early season? I, I have not, but, but good question. Yeah. It's it, yeah. So the, the rucking aspect, you might think, why would I do that? But, uh, weigh your vest and then, uh, hopefully never, but, um, I've had to carry a dog. I know, I think every one of my friends has had to carry a dog. Um, it's, you know, you, you don't want to have to do that, but being able to do it is certainly not going to hurt anybody. Um, so in terms of a lot of the times we do things with around, 20% of somebody's body weight in terms of load. Um, unless you're, a, uh, you know, a, a larger person, we definitely never go really over kind of the 50, 55 pound mark because it's the point of diminishing returns when we're talking again about that injury versus benefit prospect. Um, but realistically, if you wanted to start adding load to your walks, I would say go on the very light end of the spectrum, yep. you know, put on 10, 10 pounds, um, and see how, see how that feels. And, uh, if, you know, if anything ever feels heavy or uncomfortable to the point where you, it might impact, it should be a light enough load where you can kind of put it on, not really think about it and take off. Sure. And there's a number of ways you can do that, right? They make weight vests. Um, you can, if it's a really light load, shoot, you can, you can put it in a backpack if you have a good hunting vest. I mean, you can throw it in there if you right. if you want. Um, but I would always start on the low end of the spectrum. It depends too on just your general kind of where you're starting. So if you're like yourself, you're you're young guy, you're in pretty good shape. I wouldn't have any qualms if you're putting you know twenty percent on and going. But if it's same thing, if it's your first time rucking, I would always say just start on the low end. You know, ten twenty pounds. 
And for the bulk of your, if you're walking every day, I would say always gear way toward that, that low end. Um, if you're doing it once a week, you could, you could do it with a little more weight. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, you don't want to be packing a ton of weight around all the time. Right. Um, just, just a little bit of a load. When it comes to carrying that load, I mean, I know you said like, if it's really light, you know, you throw it in a, in a small pad. Is there anything you want to be super mindful of? Like what, you know, we talk about how well the, you know, like my final rise vest carries, carries load because it's got that waist belt. Like, do we, do we take that into consideration as to how we're carrying it? And obviously as the load increases, the more careful you got to be with it. Yeah. You hit the nail on the head. So that, that becomes more profound, the heavier the load is. Right. And that's why people spend the money they do on a final rise or a certain backpack or, or whatever is because once you kind of hit that threshold, what you're carrying it in sure makes a big difference. In terms of the lighter loads, it it's not as critical. Um, pretty much, if you have a backpack, it should be, if you're doing 20 pounds and under, say, um, it should be enough where it's really gonna, going to affect you too much. Um, the My favorite, probably just for terms of accessibility and ease, a weight vest is just really nice. It's balanced. Yeah. Um, it uh again we're talking the you know 20 pounds or less usually 25 pounds something like that um you pop it on and go there's there's a whole range of them but in terms of if somebody's at home and they just want to try it out like i said 10 pounds of whatever you want you know throw it in the backpack and uh it doesn't have to be anything super fancy if we were getting more toward doing heavier loads for some of our more specific training later in the year absolutely it's going to matter what you put it in you're really going to want um you know typically a, a a good backpack um with same thing good lumbar support that yeah. sort of thing there's there's a ton of brands that make them but having that ability to shift some of that weight off of your shoulders and onto your hips a little more yeah um is definitely going to make a difference but for for this point in the year where we're at and we're we're kind of starting small, um, it's just an easy accessible thing people could do with probably something they have in their house already. Right. Um, if and if all you had was a nice bird vest like a final rise, like I said, you might get some strange looks, but I would have no qualms with putting twenty pounds in there because my vest weighs that all year. Yeah, yeah, it's making me. Uh... I might have to uh, I might have to hit up my buddy Matt Davis for one of those sidekick. The he's just got the hip belt, basically the sidekick final rise vest, and you can get it in khaki, so it doesn't. Uh, I'm not walking around with my orange vest, but <laughs> you got me thinking. Now. Yeah, yeah, you're you're not going to get the on a watch list for some strange behavior you're <laughs> exhibiting in your neighborhood. That's yeah. probably a good idea. Yeah, I did just incorporate. This is kind of funny. I I just started wearing. Uh, a fanny pack on my dog walks in the winter specifically. Cause I tend to have like, I'm carrying, uh, I'm just carrying some stuff. I've got a, I've got a, my GPS strapped in there. Just kind of, I usually would have things in my hand. And at, actually at one point I was down a, I was down a collar on my alpha. So I had to use, I had two dog transmitters and like my hands were full. So at one point I came home from my walk and I was like, I need to order like some kind of a, a fanny pack. And sure enough, I, I found one and, uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, 
it's an olive green color, so it doesn't stand out too much, but it's made my winter walks much more enjoyable. I could probably get, uh, probably get 10 pounds in there too. So maybe I'll have to try that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and that's the beauty of something like this is there's just, it's very accessible, right? I mean, there's, there's not a big barrier to entry. So most people have something laying around their house. They could, they could make it work. Yeah. And that's what, that's, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because, with fitness stuff, a lot of times, and I think most most coaches and and fitness educators are pretty um, keen on this. Like, if you you're trying to help somebody, and immediately there's all these requirements of equipment and gear. I mean, there's no better recipe for having somebody just sort of move on with their day and forget about it. You know, like any barrier, you need to make sure the path is that of least resistance, and it's got to be easy and seamless just to get started and again a lot of times even if it's like i mean that's sometimes i struggle with that like the if you let's say you say go for a walk like what you're doing like i might have a tendency to think well i'm not getting anything done i'm just walking like it's too easy but you're actually greasing the groove or paving paving the path to to build on that. And it's those small incremental things that it just, it requires patience and dedication over time. And it almost doesn't feel like you're doing anything right. If you're doing the incremental increases in the appropriate way. Yeah, exactly. And a a prime example of that, I mean, is walking going to be all of the cardiovascular fitness you need in general? Well, no, it, you'd be served to kind of do a a broad range, but is that an activity that you should do every day and just in general for overall health? Absolutely. Because have you ever seen somebody that was no longer, you know, able to walk people that stop walking, their health declines immensely rapidly. Right. So it's kind of one of those things you can take for granted because you do it every day. Um, but like you said, you're, you're really greasing the groove. You're really building tissue tolerance. You're, you're moving, I mean, the, the benefits are, are, are very big. And so I'm a big, I'm a big fan of that because it's, it's simple, it's accessible, uh, and it's, you know, it's easy. And, but people think it's too easy to be productive, right. essentially. So adding, adding the rucking component to it can kind of spark some interest with people too, saying, well, you know that I feel like I'm doing more so, but in essence, you're just doing the same thing. You're just adding a little bit of load. Right. All right, so kind of moving the conversation forward a little bit. The knowing that, you know, what you guys do, you specialize programs for the individual and that's that's ultimately I think how you get the most bang for your buck, but when it comes to walking, um whether it's weighted or not, are there are there benchmark, you know, the I we I know we chatted briefly about the whole 10,000 step thing. Are there benchmarks or think general rule that, you know, things that you shoot for? Uh, for the average person, I mean, can you even say say that? Uh, yeah. So we we can say that the number really that's been studied um, is about eight thousand steps a day. Okay. Um, that is kind of that line. Is so ten thousand? Is it good or bad? No, not necessarily. But it was just an arbitrary nice number when okay. this um, pedometer stuff originally started. It wasn't really backed by any studies or data or anything. Um, so the, the about the 8,000 mark is the 
the place where you see all cause mortality and all these other things be affected. So moving that amount per day is just in general beneficial for your long-term health. Yeah. And in terms of then if we were looking at um, if we were looking at say rucking where we're getting into a little bit of a place for maybe a higher heart rate um, or something like that, it can be a broad range, but when we're in that, which would be, which we could go over would be like a traditional zone two heart rate. So we're looking at a more elevated heart rate than just general walking. Some of the numbers that have been studied are anywhere from like 130 to 180 minutes a week, um, where you start to really see some, uh, cardiovascular changes because exercise of any type basically is stress and then our bodies adapt to the stress which results in increased capacity whether it be in the area of you know speed power strength muscular endurance you name it so getting the dose for certain things to where it's not too much stress but it's enough to spur these adaptations that we get that's kind of that's what we base everything on um so that if you were rucking or um something like doing a you know a rower or something at a a moderate heart rate we would be looking in that you know 130 to 180 minutes per week um but that gets dovetailed into with other exercise that you're doing being at that similar heart rate too so it's not like you have to sit and do cardio for 90 minutes sort of deal right okay um, all right, so so next the the next thing that I'm kind of thinking about, and you tell me if you want to sort of go in a different direction, but thinking about as bird hunters, we are we are walking over, you know, going beyond the walking, we're walking over uneven ground, unstable terrain. How do we think about strength and stability within the body? You know, to have that sort of body awareness to keep our balance and move over this uneven ground. How do you think about that, and how do we address those types of things? I have a feeling it's going to be more on the strength side of things. Um, yeah, you're right. So we have there's a couple components there, right? So we have just the general mobility portion, right? Yep. Your, your ankles, your knees, all that stuff needs to move through a good range of motion because if you stumble or something like that, um, being able to get to where you can catch yourself or just generally have the movement to adapt to that terrain. That's kind of like public enemy number one. Um, then it does get into terms of a couple things, both in muscular endurance and, um, just strength, because if you get really fatigued easily, you know, walking through terrain gets a lot harder. You get sloppy, you roll ankles, that sort of thing. So Developing muscular endurance um, would be a, a component of strength. And the other would be what they find too when we're looking at, um, especially even like the reason why older people fall, right? They, um, they, they kind of, they lose that, those ass twitch sort of thing. So the real mm-hmm. explosive type movements, you know, if you fall and you, put your foot out to catch yourself. That's actually a pretty explosive movement. Right. So to have, to have that total package, you're kind of looking at mobility. You're looking at doing some explosive type things as well as developing muscular endurance overall. So, and speed and 
the speed or power kind of things, they don't necessarily need to be very heavy weightlifting, but when we're looking at things like plyometrics, right, that's a jumping, um, even jump rope, that sort of thing, we're looking at kind of an, an explosive lower leg activity, it doesn't necessarily have to be a high load, um, you know, rebound jumping on a low box, things like that, where you're, you're developing some of that faster, um, basically activated muscle that um, serves that purpose to keep you upright. Um, and then going along with all of that, just overall, like you're saying, your awareness, you, you know, we, that would be called like proprioception, right? Your, your awareness of yourself in space. Okay. Yeah. So the more you move, especially whether it be with, you know, weightlifting movements, walking, mobility, um, moving through all these different planes is going to help your proprioception to kind of know where know where your body at is in general to space really so that is kind of a secondary benefit of all these forms of training but the the big things we look at on the strength side specifically for people that are doing a lot of walking or um we're not looking at that that really um maximal power and output strength we're looking at muscular endurance like how many times can you repeat a given activity and then some of the the more explosive things um in terms of like i said um plyometrics jumping some of those so an example of that if we're going to build muscular endurance um especially if that's a lot of what we're doing at this time of the year we're we're calling it like we're building the gas tank essentially yeah um so we're looking at things like um i don't know if you've ever heard of like high intensity continuous training oh yeah well i was i my mind immediately went to high intensity interval training i've done a fair bit of that that's and that's where most people's minds go so high intensity continuous training would be doing an exercise such as say like a box step up right yep um, but we're doing those, uh, you know, one to two of those every five to 10 seconds. So you kind of do either one or two reps at the top of the next 10 seconds, one or two reps. And you're doing this, um, as your ability increases, you can add load to it. Um, but doing this over time is one of the ways you can develop basically greater capacity to repeat a, a given movement. So you know, something like a step up is relatively specific in terms of like going up a hill. You're using a lot of that anterior leg as well as your posterior chain. How, how long but, would the duration be on something like, you know, if you're doing two reps every 10 seconds for how long then? If, if you were just starting out, I would say a good place to start might be like 10 minutes. Okay. Um, so you, you can set a timer essentially to to beep at you every 10 seconds for, for 10 minutes. Um, and you could start it without, without any load to see where you're at. Um, and with these being, you're trying to do these in a kind of an explosive fashion, not net, you know, not over the top, but it's not just a nice, easy, soft step up. You're going to be doing it on a, on a short box. So say like 12 inches, um, which puts you in a better position to, to have that kind of quicker, more explosive movement, especially coming from like the hip area. So you would be stepping up on there, just really powering through that box down and repeating with the other foot. 
wait for 10 seconds. Um, and it gives you enough time to where you're not doing so many reps that you build up a ton of waste products essentially in your muscle that you can't clear and then you fatigue and you're done. So when you do things like that, basically it's helping your muscles um, in the simplest terms, you're, you're actually making new basically capillary beds or you're getting more blood flow to your muscles with mm -hmm. that stimulus over time, Okay. Um, which then enhances your ability to perform that task over and over and over again. Yeah. Got it. Um, what, I don't know if this is totally a, a sidestep here, but what are the, what are the most common like deficiencies or imbalances you think that the everyday person would have that you'd want to work on for somebody that says, Hey, I want to, I want to upland hunt and feel better doing it. Like, are there, are there things you would point to? Yeah. I mean, everyone's different, but as, as a general rule, you'll hear us harp on this a lot, but movement, you can always move better. So mm -hmm. doing, doing things that are going to optimize your mobility are that that's going to be the foundation. And then a, a, a big thing would be what we talked about. Fitness is a big spectrum, right? Or health. And there's things you can do on either end. So like what you said, you're like, oh, I've done a lot of high intensity interval training. A lot of people, when they jump into fitness, they think, you know, I, well, I haven't been doing this or um, I need to do something really hard to get me in better shape. Mm -hmm. Yep. And that isn't necessarily the, the best way to go about it. There are things we need to do at higher ends, but the bulk of our work honestly is in more of a moderate intensity range. Yep. So convincing people to do that easy cardio where your heart rate is, you know, like they say a conversational pace, or you could breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth. Um, yep or zone two, if you're using a heart rate monitor, convincing people that to do a lot of that, um, it, most people just aren't thrilled about it. They think it's not going to work. It's not going to get them in great shape, but all people could pretty much benefit from spending more time in that aerobic place of that, you know, relatively low intensity. Yeah. You're, you're talking to a guy that did P90X at one time. So I'm like, I'm like the, which oh. there, there's some things in there that are, you know, actually when you said plyometrics, my mind immediately went to P90X. Cause that was one of my favorite workouts of that. And this is going back to like when I was in college, this is like a decade ago, but still, um, it's that all, you know, all or nothing approach. I mean, I get myself into trouble a lot with that. Just thinking you need to make and it's very common for folks, you know, New Year's resolutions, you, you know, make this massive yep. change. It's the pendulum swings too far. You can't stick with it. Then you get down on yourself. It's just a bad, bad deal. So the slow and steady approach, yeah. um, which I've gotten better and better at implementing, um, and I would say last year leading up to Upland season was my best yet of, like, just not getting over the top on anything and just a slow, steady buildup. Um, that's, that's where – I certainly find success there. That's for sure. And and you're not the only person. I mean, I think everybody that has has done this at some point has, you know, not felt great about themselves, jumped into the deep end, and then you end up feeling worse about yourself if you're, you know, like, oh, I'm ruined right now, or I can't keep doing this. Um, it's not a very sustainable pattern. Right. And, and people also, if there's something I could, uh, 
want people to realize is you need all of these areas, right? You need to move well, you need some strength, you need a good amount of moderate cardio, you need a little bit of the higher end stuff. You need all of it to be a generally, you know, you want to be a Swiss army knife, right? You yeah. want to be able to kind of do everything. You're not going to be a power lifter or a sprinter or, you know, those are very specific. Mm -hmm. So looking at, looking at that and, and like you're saying, having, having room to build up, I mean, that's kind of one of the key components, right? To getting any kind of exercise adaptation is you, you have to have some feature of progressive overload. So if you start in a place where you're at 10 out of 10, you're not really giving yourself room to grow yeah. where, you know, strength work, that kind of stuff. A lot of it's done in the 80% or lower kind of range. And that's enough to have you grow, but you, you need that ability to ramp up basically. Um, and then another thing is looking at, like when you said it's it's that time of the year, it's time to start uh, looking at kind of the seasons of the year and in the exercise world that would be called uh, periodization, yeah. which Todd, who who founded the, you know, who I coach with is brilliant at that in terms of, you know, you're adding these layers all the time. So you don't need to jump into the deep end of the pool right off the bat you uh you know you start you build the foundation and then you kind of the better your foundation is then it's easier to get to a point if you're going to do some some higher intensity things because you have this nice um you know you move well you're decently strong you have decent cardiovascular capacity then you can add some more intense stuff absolutely i guess if if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me and that's what I'm uh I'm hoping you guys can help me with, which I think I think uh I think that'll that'll work out I, well. I I promise. I promise <laughs> you. <laughs> so, for the sake of this conversation, well, obviously we can't go down the entire rabbit hole, but um to if there's anything else you want to clarify, please do, but I'm are there are there things that like do we get very specific as far as the exercises? We've hit on lots of little things and examples. Is there a is there a core um, three to five things that you would say you know for the up and bird hunters out there listening that are interested in increasing their capacity and uh, ability to move? Um, is there is there something you would point them to or or exercise? You know, walking. We talked about that. Like, can we distill it uh, for the sake of this conversation? Um, in terms of like what a couple weeks or something would look like. Or... Yeah. Yeah. And just, yeah. And like what maybe, maybe certain activities, things we've talked about, if we're, if we're summarizing here, just like things that, that people could be focusing on, uh, to better prepare them for the season. Like, are there key exercises or things that you do all the time? Yeah. So you're, you'll kind of see a recurring theme, right? So the main thing is find a cardiovascular activity that's not insanely um taxing okay that you that you like right like so mountain biking? if it's walking yeah i mean mountain biking can be yeah the ca caveat to that would be having an understanding of what it costs you i guess um because mountain biking could be anywhere from riding on gravel and being very easy to you're, you know, screaming high heart rates for a very long duration. Right. right. Um, 
so that's it's pretty variable but biking is nice because it's um pretty much concentric right you're not absorbing a lot of stress Mm -hmm. so recovering from those things is a little easier but finding uh, a cardiovascular activity that you like that you can do a couple times a week would be a good place to start um and making sure it's something where if you and i were doing it next to each other we could have a conversation and not have to kind of stop to catch our breath sort of that pace um and then looking at strength activities it can really be boiled down to um you know you're doing a lower body push of some type right so a lunge a squat something okay um a lower body hinge which is you know your um, deadlift picking something up off the floor um an upper body push and an upper body pull Got so yep. you know an overhead press a row of some type those are kind of the core movements you're going to see cycled through because doing a similar flavor of those things you get better at the skill of the activity and then over time you're better able to handle intensity so somewhere falling in those few movements there's a there's a ton of them obviously right and then incorporating um what i would say would be some sort of plyometric activity so you can do things like a skater jump side to side yeah um rebound jumps up and down (laughs) yeah those are those are all great right because you're getting some same thing you're getting some tissue tolerance in a specific place and you're developing some of that um kind of foot speed that can help you from falling off of a cliff while you're trucker hunting those would be some of the kind of the core areas where we would look at things that um people could do to generally improve their fitness in a in in a, a manner they like yeah. you know so pick pick one of those items you like and then when you're looking at the strength strength can get kind of you could go way down the wormhole right but for purpose of this conversation and this time of year if we're saying yeah people haven't done much you're going to obviously have to feel out your weights a little bit um and starting in the an easy place to say would be you know like three sets of five of of you know pick your exercise sort of thing mm-hmm. see how you feel see if it, if it was really easy you can increase that load a little bit um for the most part, we're going to stay in some of the lower rep ranges because we're not trying to be bodybuilders unless we're doing specific work capacity stuff. But in general, a fair amount of cardio, good mobility, some explosive kind of jumping plyometric stuff, and some of those strength items like we talked, you know, lower push, hinge, um, upper pull, upper push. Yep pretty pretty straightforward yeah no yeah that that's that's what i was looking for so that was that was very well laid out and i mean those exercises you know you can air squats lunges push-ups pull-ups i mean that kind of stuff applies here and like you said there's a million different exercises to hit that stuff but um the key here is to focus on when it comes to the mobility and we're gonna we're gonna kind of conclude here pretty quickly but with the mobility is that incorporated into the stuff we're talking about or because i think that would be the area that is maybe most likely overlooked are there are we are we talking stretching how do we improve our mobility and flexibility specifically are there certain things we're doing yeah so you're right in saying that's something that's overlooked um that there's i mean there's so many different examples of exercises yeah um 
I mean, for like on our Instagram, the human predator pack meal, there's lots of examples of various uh, mobility things you can do that walk you through how to do them and why. Okay. So stre- stretching to some degree is, you know, if it feels good and certain stretches for different people, depending on what you have, that's good. Um, some of the bread and butter ones I would go through, people can look up are called an ankle car. So that's C-A-R, um, which means controlled articular rotation. So um, ankle car, hip car, shoulder car. And basically you're taking those um, joints through uh, as big of a range of motion basically as you can. Okay. Very simple, very easy. You can do them anywhere. Um, they all have great benefit and carryover. And then in terms of like with our programming, we have a kind of a standardized warm up where you go through okay. a lot of these these things. But those are those are a couple of the, the big ticket items where most people, especially if you're walking a lot or carrying, you know, a vest, those kind of things. Those three areas, you're typically well served to, like you said, grease that groove, you know, as you know, you can do it every day very easily. Right. Yep. Got it. Got it. Well, as we've we've kind of alluded to i'm going to be i'm going to be working with you guys a little bit this off season and and we'll be sort of prefacing things here and maybe we'll circle back at some point and talk about uh nick's progress or lack of progress we'll we'll see what happens but what is uh, i gotta ask what is your preferred method of cardio what do you do that that gets you in that cardio spot and you enjoy doing it I am a utilitarian when it comes to that because I do it all year round. So I have a, I have a rogue echo bike at my house. Oh, okay. Um, I do that a lot. I, I walk a lot still, but for my, I walk every day, but doing my little bit higher heart rate cardio, I, I really am a fan of the echo bike um, or, you know, any of those fan bikes, just because if it's dark outside, I, can still hop on there and get it done and it's uh just makes it easy for me yeah i have thought a lot about getting uh some sort of stationary thing i thought about a treadmill um or a bike to have here kind of like what you're saying like in the winter when it's dark early um you know if i'm out in the office here like watching a a show or something i you know rather than sitting in the chair you could be on the bike i haven't done that yet but I like to, I do a lot of walking, um, walking, snowshoeing a lot this winter and you're getting me excited. I'm going to, I'm going to, I got to check my schedule, but I definitely want to get on my, my skis this afternoon. Cause that's, I like, I love cross country skiing. I feel like you're in, uh, it's somewhat dependent on the terrain, but I feel like you're in, you're in very good control of what you're talking about to sort of get in that zone and stay in it. Um, and there, you know, there's some steep hills and I like those those little bit of sprints and climbs and stuff. But for the most part, I can kind of, that's an exercise where it's low impact and I can stay in that zone that I want to be in. And then the other thing I did a lot of last year was trail running, which I was talking to you about this a little bit. And I, and I, I started extremely slow. I mean, running so slow that it just felt like you're, you're hardly even running. And I just gradually did that um, over the, over the summer. And eventually it got to the point where like, I felt like my body was kind of telling me like, go faster, go. I, I just felt like I was, I was very in tune and it was a, it was a really good buildup, um, last year. So. Yeah. And I mean, it's like we, like we said, whatever you like, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can do week over week. So the, you know, the, the bike is nice because like you said, with the skiing, you're very in control. Yep. So 
what we see with running is most people, if you go run, your heart rate's actually going to be probably higher than you would expect. Yep. Um, where we want it a little lower than that. So with the bike, you can very easily dial in your output. Um, just like you're saying with cross country skiing, you know, if it's you're, you're on terrain where you can kind of control your pace, um, that's great. And then with running, like what you see is likely what occurred is, you know, your cardiovascular fitness improves to where you can do a faster or longer rate of work at a, probably a similar heart rate as to where you started the year. And that's why, that's why it feels so good. Yep. Um, and, exactly. that, and you're doing exactly what we're, we're aiming for is to make, you know, give you enough stress that you adapt and you become more efficient and then life becomes more enjoyable, right? You yeah. get to pay attention to the dog and what they're doing and are they ripping that bird or not? Because <laughs> your heart rate isn't 180 and seeing spots, you know, you're just, you know, enjoying it. Thank you for bringing that full circle for us, Jordan. You got it. <laughs> I love it. Well, I, I don't think I could end on a, on a better note than that. So um, thank you very much for, for taking some time to join us today. This was a blast. Uh, if folks wanted to reach out to you and just uh, bounce anything off you, is there a way they could get in touch with you? The easiest way would be probably Instagram. Okay. Um, my, my handle is actually the kid mule. Yep. Uh, packed the, pack the kid around for a long time. Love it. Um, <laughs> and if, uh, if they wanted to check out the training stuff, get um, ideas for mobility, whatever, if there's a ton of stuff on there. It's um, human predator pack mule is our Instagram. Okay. Awesome, dude. Well, uh, yeah, if, if, unless you got anything else, I think we'll, we'll conclude this first conversation and we'll get you back on the show at some point. I look forward to chatting more chucker hunting, Brittany's setters and fitness stuff. And, uh, it's been fun. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It was great. Yep. You bet, man. All right. Hang on for just a second. That does it for this episode of the Birdshot podcast. Thanks for tuning in everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. And if you really love the show and want to contribute above and beyond what you already do by listening, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.